can't help but think of the rich place um, men's and women's roles have within Scripture. It's where you've been celebrating motherhood in a day like today. Scripture anchors that and the richness of our God, that he's triune. One God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a unity of essence, distinction of persons. And we see that reflected throughout the world. God has painted portraits of his glory, of unity and distinction throughout all of Scripture. We see his glory radiating, Psalm 19, heavens declare the glory of God. We can never take anything in creation and say, well, this is the Trinity. No. He, he, he's the creator. But he's reflected unity and distinction in the world around us. And we see in Genesis 1.26 where God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female reflecting the glory of God. There's a unity of the human race and yet distinctiveness in male and female roles. And something that we as believers can treasure is God has revealed his glory even in men's and women's roles. And on top of that, you think of after the fall, God made the promise to Adam and Eve that a woman would bear the seed, the Savior, the child. What an honor. We don't want to lose the anchor for even the place of motherhood and fatherhood and children all reflected of our God. Thankful for his revelation and his word. Well, in Colossians, and I think it's a fitting lead-in, in Colossians he deals with men's and women's roles in chapter 3, chapter 4, as the fruit of the ministry of the gospel in the home, in the church, in the work life. But he begins in chapter 1 with the fruitfulness that is anchored, if you will, in the deep soil of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, my wife, three children, and I lived in North Hollywood, California, and we uh, decided to try to grow some grass in our little rental property. The Lord had graciously given. We're very thankful. And so we turned over the yard, uh, planted grass, and then turned over the yard and planted grass, and then turned over the yard and planted grass, and finally got the idea that something's wrong here. Apparently, North Hollywood, it's mainly sand, so nothing's going to grow. You've got to totally redo the soil. So we gave up. You know you do what every parent with young kids do, right? It's, it's a mud pit. Grab the hose, spray it all down. Kids go at it, <laughs> and they ran sliding in it. It was a, a great mess. <laughs> when I look at a passage like Colossians 1, 3 through 14, we see the opposite of that. We see fruitfulness. Increasing fruitfulness, filling, strengthening, bearing fruit. And that's in a stark contrast to Colossians 2, 18 through 23, which describe things that all perish. Things that are grounded in the self, in the flesh. He says they're, they have an appearance of wisdom but they're self-made and they're of no value, verse 23. Apparently what's rooted and grounded in ourselves for our own glory, our own accomplishments, just like we are finite and are weak and destined to perish, so the wisdom and philosophies that we generate from ourselves will die with us, as philosopher after philosopher have carried 
their philosophy to the grave. It's been added to, changed, tweaked. On and on we go. Paul contrasts this rich soil of Colossians chapter 1 with the Colossians 2 deadness and barrenness of the flesh. And if we would, I'd like to look a little bit at this fruitfulness of the soil that belongs to Jesus Christ. I'd like to answer the question, what is God's plan for genuine, real fruitfulness? Fruitfulness that lasts. It's not destined to, to perish. Fruitfulness that brings glory to God. What are the conditions of that soil that might encourage our hearts? Bernard, an early church father, said this. He compares a person of Colossians chapter 2, the, the fleshly person, to a man being hungry, gaping continually for the wind. While he may be puffed, he cannot be filled and satisfied. That's the description of Colossians 2. Someone who's trying to find meaning in life and just gaping after the wind. Maybe puffed up by taking in the air, but there's no satisfaction. Thomas Brooks, who was an English nonconformist Puritan preacher, nonconformist man, he was not part of the state church. Gathered together out in the woods or in private homes, underground churches. He says this about the world and the flesh in stark contrast to what we're going to see here. The world deludes a man and puts cheats upon him. It promises a man pleasure and pays him with pain. It promises profit and pays him with loss, loss of God, loss of Christ, of comfort, of heaven, of happiness, of all. It promises contentment and fills him with torment and therefore can never satisfy the soul of man. That's the contrast. But that is not the character that we see in Colossians chapter 1. Why is that? Why is this so fruitful? First of all, because it's grounded in the person of Christ. Look with me at verse 2, Colossians 1 verse 2. This rich soil, this fruitfulness is grounded in the person of Christ and his work. In verse 2 he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We'll stop there. Now, what's been taught to us and passed down through men like Bart, and if you go before him, Kant, is that this faith is just an intangible, just reach out, metaphysical, unreal thing. And the way the Bible describes faith is a spiritual union with Christ. That is that we behold him spiritually. We see him, his preciousness, his worth, his value. And we trust in him. We cling to him through his word. So his word testifies to the glory of Christ, his personal work, and we spiritually grab onto him. And when we say spiritually, we don't mean just ethereal. It's the ministry of the Spirit. He opens our eyes to see the worth of Jesus Christ in his word, and we trust in him. That's what we mean by spiritual faith. We're not talking about some ethereal, unreal, metaphysical, philosophical thing. We're talking about the Spirit's ministry, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, wakens our hearts to see Christ and to trust in him, to anchor our life into the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he's describing then in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, grounded in Christ. Well, who is this Christ? Well, verse 3 helps to answer that question. There are three titles uh, in, in verse 3 that help us see this grandeur and weight of the one that we're grounded in, this Christ. In verse 3, we, we see Paul's response to the grace of God by giving thanks. And what does he say about 
this Jesus that our faith is anchored in? Well, he, he says the, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three titles. First of all, he is the eternal son. Where would you get son? Because he says that God is the father of Christ. Why would you say he's emphasizing his eternal sonship as opposed to his incarnation, his humanity? Because the scripture emphasizes that sonship too as our representative. Well, because he uses the title Lord, underlining his deity. Peter and Paul use the title Kyrios or Lord to translate the Hebrew title Yahweh. In the book of Isaiah particularly, it's redundant over and over again. Peter and Paul take the title Yahweh and they reference that text and then insert Lord in place of Yahweh. What he's saying is who Yahweh is, is the deliverer. This is Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the eternal Son. This is whom we ground our our faith in, we trust in, we rest in, we rely upon, we depend upon, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son. Paul will go on to amplify that in chapter 1 and 2, where he says that in Christ is the fullness of deity, chapter 2, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. You don't get part of God, you get fully God in Christ Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He's the creator of heaven and earth, Colossians 1.16. Our faith is grounded in Christ. He is God. Secondly, second title, Jesus. It's from the Hebrew word Yeshua, or Joshua, comes across in our Indo-European language with a J. So that Y sound moves into the J, Joshua. So Yeshua, Joshua. Instead of Jesus, we get Jesus. The J comes across. Well, what's that title emphasizing? Saviorship. He's the Savior. But particularly it's underlining now his humanity, his incarnation. In Matthew 1, 20 through 23, the angel of the Lord, after introducing Christ's conception, said, his name shall be called Jesus. And he says, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he makes this amazing statement. He says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God, the Lordship of Christ, is with us. Jesus, the title emphasizes his saviorship, that he's come to us in salvation. He's also king. Third title, Christ, Christos. We think, well, Christian, and we think of Christ. We don't realize that the rich heritage, is that's, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Mashiach, or Messiah. It's the Messiah promoted and looked forward to in the Old Testament, the text is underlined, this is the one. This is God's representative. This is God's ruler. We are attached to him. This is the soil then for the believer's faith. This soil bears Christian fruit because it is grounded to Christ who is God, Christ who is our savior, and Christ who is God's representative. God's representative in what way? Well, Adam failed, as we know. He was, our, he was the human representative, and he declared war on God. And in Adam, we've declared war on God, and God has sent a second Adam, a Mashiach representative, to do what Adam failed to do, to fulfill God's law, to take the punishment that we deserve, to be raised in glory. If we are attached to him by faith, we gain his life. 
the ground of our faith is Christ's person, but also his work. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, look at verse 5. This word here is very important. Why is it thrown in there? I mean, normally we love the triad, faith, hope, and love. We love those little signs out there, faith, hope, and love, beautiful. But this is interesting. He says, faith in Christ. So there's the, the ground of our faith is Christ. And we've looked at his person. And he talks about the love that flows out to the saints, which he'll come back to in a moment. But he anchors faith and love in the hope. He says, Be, because of the hope. And that preposition there in the Greek is, it's in your face. It is because of the hope. This is the basis. The hope. Is it my hope? Well, my hope's attached to him by faith. But this is emphasizing an objective hope. The hope, it says. Not just somebody's hopeful prayer and wish, but it is objective, the hope. And where is this hope? Laid up for you in heaven. Why does he use the term laid up in heaven? Because it's underlining the ascension of Jesus Christ, the the finality, the completion of his entire work. In fact, in verse 5 and 6, he'll talk about the gospel. He connects right to the ministry of the gospel. And the promotion of the gospel, the good news of Christ. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ to save sinners by obeying for us, by dying on the cross to pay for our sins, being raised and ascended. So the ascension laid up in heaven culminates as the culmination of his entire glorious saving work. So it underlines the comprehensiveness of his salvation, the, the finality, the completion, and the certainty of it. So he's captured this idea of being laid up in heaven, secured in heaven, to underline the finality of his work, the certainty, the comprehensiveness. You see, apart from the ascension of Jesus Christ, we'd be running into an impenetrable fortress when it comes to God. The reason we have access is because Christ has accomplished the entire work of salvation. It is sealed in him, and then he's raised And in raising, what does he do? He pours out the Spirit so that we are united by faith with Christ, so that we gain access to Jesus Christ. His resurrection life, his salvation life, all that he's accomplished for us becomes ours because he sent his Spirit to join us with Christ by faith. And when we said that faith is spiritual, we're talking about the ministry of the Spirit to join us to Christ, to believe, to trust, to rest in him. So this faith is grounded in Christ's ascended work. We've seen it's grounded in Christ's person. Also his ascended work because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's why it's objective. That's why it's secure. That's why we have confidence. That's why this is a living hope. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the hope of glory. He's the living hope. Faith is grounded in the ascended work of Christ, which again culminates his entire saving work for us, becomes ours because of the ascended life of Christ. It's also grounded in the grace of God proclaimed in the gospel. Look at verse 5 again. Because of the hope, so that faith in Christ and love for the saints is anchored in this hope, our ascended Lord, that's laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is 
bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now notice the, this hope, we're underlining the ascension of Christ, secured in heaven, has been promoted in the gospel. So here Christ, coronated king, ascended Lord, now makes an announcement through the gospel, which believers hear and trust in. That's, he underlines, is the word of truth. The word of truth underlines the proclamation of the gospel through the preaching of the word of God. Christ is announcing his finished work, his glorious, resurrected, ascended work. We hear it in the message of the gospel of Christ. Notice the fruitfulness of this. You see, Christ's ascended work, his ascension, is life-giving. First Corinthians 15 said in his ascension, he became a life-giving spirit. He's the source of life. All these salvation blessings that he's earned and accomplished are in him, radiating in him. How do we get that? Through Christ, through faith, by the Spirit. Is it any wonder then that this gospel bears fruit? That it moved across the world from one translation of the Bible into another translation of the Bible? Took over the world? Paul's describing the the expansion of the gospel. Not only in its quality, it increased personal fruit, but also that it expanded through the whole world. Why is there such life to this message? Benathius, who said, who, if God, if God did work, why would he, it's Christopher Hitchens said this, why would, why would God ever come to a dirty, rocky place like Israel? It is, in his, his words, the armpit of the world, and it is. I've been there. Why would God come to the armpit of the world? And we ask the question, why would the gospel from the armpit of the world advance throughout the world, taking over souls of believers, sinners, granting faith in Christ, resurrection life, trust in him, and bear fruit? And the text tells us because Christ is the ascended Lord. Calvin says, how do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on the only begotten Son? So Christ, think of all these salvation gifts that are His, as the ascended Lord. He said, to enrich poor and needy men, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. We can talk intellectually about Jesus, No benefit to us unless trusted in him, received him by faith. It's the work of the Spirit of God to open our eyes to see Christ and his preciousness. Look at the fruit. We saw in verse 4 that this love moved to all the saints. Love that you have for all the saints. And then we look at verse 8. And we see the culmination of this fruitfulness. He says in verse 8, And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this fruitfulness that's expanding through the world, that's proclaiming the gospel, that's growing in the grace of God, is bearing the fruit that's marked by love. I was thinking of Psalm 16.3 where the writer says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Evidence of the fruit-bearing ministry of Christ 
being attached to him by faith. Lordship of Christ, the saviorship of Christ, the kingship of Christ that we love. It drove believers to promote the gospel of Christ, to advance it. It should cause us to scratch our heads when we're struggling with harboring anger for believers when the savior of love is our root. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, not while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we saw in verse 8, this love is in the Spirit. It's controlled by the Spirit. That's why it expands and moves across the globe. I I taught a class in our Institute for Biblical Studies a number of years ago on the background of the Bible. So I pulled up some of those notes and put it in here. And it's just astounding watching the translation progress. I don't mean process, I mean progress of the New Testament. Starting in Jerusalem, it moves to Egypt. And by 292 AD, there's a, a Thebaic and Memphic text. That's Egypt. It moves from, so it's translated. The Bible is translated into those languages. And then it moves about between the 4th century and the 12th century. It moves into Ethiopia. Africa. Backpedaling a little bit because it's spreading out. Prior to AD 325, a pastor named Theophilus ministered to the Goths. The Goths' second pastor, Ophelus, translated the New Testament from Greek into the Germanic language. So it goes into the Germanic tribes. The Peshitta is the major Armenian or Syriac translation of the Old Testament. Armenia took the gospel to the Georgian region between the Black and Caspian Seas. By 450 AD, the Georgian Christians translated the Bible into their language. Now we have a few present with us that from the early... Christian roots of Armenia. You think of Syria. Rich heritage. Between 450 and 1100 AD, the Anglo-Saxons had only small portions of scripture translated into their old English language until Wycliffe began working on an English Bible. It's fascinating. Why in the world would the Bible step into all these languages, add language after language after language? because of the fruitfulness of the gospel, because of the love of believers, because of union with Christ, because they're so amazed, as this text says, by the grace of God, they, they heard it and they understood it. They grasped the reality, verse 6 says, that God has graced us. It's not based on what we deserve. We, we deserve wrath and judgment. It's not based upon our righteous doing. It's not based on our self-justification. That keeps promoting the flesh, Colossians 2. And leads us right back to the flesh. God has graced us. He's entered this world in Christ. What glory, what love. Why would he do such a thing? They heard the message. They understood the grace of God. It's all of God. God has come in Christ. And awakened their hearts. And it bore fruit. So the first spiritual condition is faith grounded in Christ. Grounded in his lordship, saviorship, kingship. That one has come, God, with us. It's also grounded in his ascension, the culmination of the finality of his entire saving work for us. It's grasping onto his grace. I deserve judgment, but look what he did. He came and bore the wrath for me. He fulfilled the law for me. He's been raised for me. He's been ascended for me. I'm united with Christ, so I get all of that. What grace! And the glories of the gospel begin to move across the world. And here we are, gathered together, 
looking at the word of God. <laughs> Treasuring Christ. It's the second spiritual condition. And this is going to move really quickly into the third. Filled with the knowledge of Christ. Verses 9 through 11. Filled with the knowledge of Christ. So ask how does this gospel bear fruit in our lives? Well, we've seen the ground, Christ. It's person work. We're also seeing that we're filled up in our daily walk with these glories of Christ. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul, in his Christian life, is recognizing the grace of God and salvation. Now he's going to depend upon God's sovereign grace through prayer to fill us up, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Look at these comprehensive statements. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Who in the world can say they have all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. He's going to say a little bit later, strengthened in verse 11, with all power for all endurance. Paul, come on, are you being extreme or what here? But if you have Christ, you have everything in Christ. If you have Christ, you have the fullness of deity in Christ. You have all. So what I need for endurance, what I need for strengthening, what I need for joy is a reminder of who I have. So often my children in different stages of their life will go on to deal with sports teams or high school. And there was a time of difficulty and suffering for the name of Christ. Can I say that? I think it would be fair too. Because they bore the name of Christ, made some decisions. It was so comforting to be able to bring them into the home and say, Look around you. You may have lost friends. They may be against you. But you know what? We're for you. We love you. You have a place to rest and then go back out and serve. If we forget that, then all our identity gets wrapped in. They're against me and that person's against me. And there's no, it's hopeless. We're brought back into the home and we remember all that we we have that our parents are for us and our, our, my sister and brother's for me and my dogs are for me and the guinea pigs are for me and, and the fish keep going, right? We've got all these animals. <laughs> I think that'll be it. They're for me. It's a place of rest. And Paul says in verse 9 that we're filled up and this is a prayer that the Lord would fill us, remind us of the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which affects then in verse 10, our walk, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. As we're filled with the knowledge of his will, it affects our walk. We're driven by pleasing him. And we know that we are pleasing to him because we're in Christ, the ascended Lord. We bear fruit. Why? Because we have the life-giving supply of Christ, the ascended Lord. And that leads to an increase in the knowledge of God. So we're digging in to learn more of this Christ whom we love. And we're strengthened internally to walk out, internally to walk out and face the world with endurance and joy and patience. You say, well, what is this real knowledge? Well, it's God's will, God's purpose, God's plan. That's what he says in verse 9, filled with the knowledge of his will. Okay, so where do I find his will? Well, he says there in verse 9, all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Well, then to whom do I look to find this wisdom, knowledge, and understanding? Well, in Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3, he says that in Christ are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that I need to understand are rooted and grounded in Christ. So what I need to understand is who Christ is and what he's done. That's his thing. He's God. He's Lord. He's your Savior. He's come down. God is with us. You have God in Christ. He's your King. He rules. How shall we obtain Christ? Verse 14 will tell us the redemption in Him. The redemption in Him. Number three. So faith is grounded in Christ. It's the soil. It's filled with the knowledge of Christ. We're strengthened by the reminders of who Christ is, what He's done. And thirdly, strengthened from the redemption of Christ. Strengthened from the redemption of Christ. Verse 11. May you be strengthened. He loves these all, all statements. With all power. How could you say that? <laughs> because of who Christ is. Fullness of deity dwells in him. According to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12. Where does this lead to? And this gives us a key to understanding what this strength is grounded in. What this glorious might for endurance, patience, and joy is grounded in. It emits thanksgiving and praise. So it helps us understand what lies is the the bedrock, the foundation for this strength and power. And he tells us in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he first begins with glorification. You've been qualified. That's an amazing statement when I was a rebel in Adam. But now I've been qualified for an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Deals with our future. Qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thomas Brooks notes that when we receive earthly inheritances, we have to partial them up. We can't all enjoy the whole inheritance altogether. We're all getting little pieces of it. But not this inheritance. We share it all fully and completely. Why? Because by His Spirit, we gain Christ. All of us gain Christ. This is what we're qualified for. Well, how in the world can we be qualified for this? Well, verse 13, he moves into our sanctification, that we've been set apart unto the kingdom of Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. If we remained in the domain of darkness, boasting the flesh, living from the flesh, trusting the flesh, my redemptive fleshly plans to outweigh my good with my, my bad with my good, my, my failures with my strengths, If we trust in that, we're living in the domain of darkness. We're blind to that high standard that God requires and that therefore we we need Christ. So if we live in that domain of darkness and that's our life, that's the power over our lives, the rule over our lives, we're not qualified. But he says we're qualified. Notice that the one acting is the father. We think of the father wrathful, judging the son. But here the father is acting to deliver through the Son. He delivers us. Notice in verse 12, he said, qualified you, how personal that is. Me? Yes, you. If your trust is in Christ, grounded in Christ, qualified you. Now he moves to the the plural. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We've had a a kingdom change. We were once uh, under the rule and dominion of sin, living for ourselves, living from ourselves. And now we've been transferred by the power of the Father to the kingdom 
And notice he says of his beloved son, and we're met with love again. The father's loved us by placing in the one he loves and delights in, namely the son. Well, we're qualified. We're transferred from one domain to another, emphasizing the rulership of Jesus Christ. Theologians would note that's our sanctification. We're set apart unto Christ. That happens when we believe. But then there's also the process of living underneath the reign of Christ. 14. But how can this be so? How can we who were rebels, who were sinners, who lived from the flesh, for the flesh, be qualified and delivered? Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice in Christ, we're back to our union with Jesus Christ. See, all of our salvation is stored up in Jesus. We need him. Notice what we gain when we're united with Christ. In whom we have redemption. It's secure. It's, it's the work of Christ to buy us out of the slave market of sin by paying for our sins, taking the wrath of God for us, living the perfect life, fulfilling the requirements of God's law. What do we get? The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins comes at a cost, redemption. Purchase must be paid. The purchase of his life. Now he says here that we're strengthened by this. With all power. According to his glorious might. So this plan of salvation that involves glory, the future, the present, we're set in his dominion, and our past that our sins are paid for strengthens and encourages us. You know, unbelievers have the hardest time with grasping the reality that God has come into this world. Deism argued that if God came down, he could not be the creator, for he is of a different essence than creation. So, if you will, the deist sought to prison God and his sovereignty. If you're sovereign, you're the creator, then if you come down, then you become the creature. You're not God. So we imprison you, if you will, in your sovereignty. Pantheism argued that if God came down, then he is one with us, essentially. Then he must be created. So the pantheist sought to imprison God in his nearness. And both of those thinkings are involved in many different kinds of religions. But I want to propose to you that Paul tells us that God's mighty work is displayed in precisely that. The one who is God, who is the creator, is so powerful that he came down. And that is something that only our God, the Christian God, can do. Because for one, he's triune, eternal. One God, eternally existing in three persons. So there's fellowship within who God is. And he is the one who came down. Paul says that that reality that has secured glory, qualified us for, brought us into the domain of Christ and his rule and redemption, encourages and strengthens us that God has come down into this mess to save us, to raise us up in him and give us life. What, what an amazing promise. You can't help but looking around the world and seeing that when governments are in civil war, families are messed, children are injured, killed. We've been watching this, haven't we? When governments are in a mess, families, homes, it's destructive. 
This is meant to encourage us because while we see the kingdoms of the world, if you will, under the domain of darkness, in rebellion against God, we as believers are able to remember, wait a minute, but I serve a glorious king, a king who's come down, a king who's been raised. I've been united to you. My sins are paid for. I have everything in the Lord. It brings stability to our homes. It brings stability to our life, even in the midst of the chaos of what we face in the world around us. It's meant to guard our hearts, to encourage our hearts. Thomas Brooks wrote in his sermon, The Best Things Reserved for Last, he was wanting to comfort a family in his church that had lost a wife, a mother, and a friend. He says, She's exchanged earth for heaven, a wilderness for paradise, a prison for a palace, a house made with hands for one eternal in the heavens, imperfection for perfection, sighing for singing, mourning for rejoicing, petitions for praises, the society of sinful mortals for the company of God, pain for ease, sickness for health, a bed of weakness for a bed of spices, an imperfect transient enjoyment of God for a more clear, full, perfect, and permanent enjoyment of God. He then says, though your brook be dried up, yet Christ, the fountain of light, life, love, grace, glory, comfort, joy, goodness, sweetness, and satisfaction is still at hand and always full and flowing. Yes, overflowing. He then finishes with this. Oh, that your hearts and thoughts would be thus busied about Christ and taken up with Christ and with those treasures of wisdom, knowledge, grace, goodness, sweetness, which are in him. This would very much allay your grief and sorrow and keep your hearts quiet and silent for the Lord. Lord, we'd ask that you would remind us of all that we have in Jesus. That's why we're here in the midst of the difficulties of life, our sinful failures and weakness. We're able to look at his glorious person and work for us and to rest in him, to draw from his promises and find strength and encouragement for each day. Remind us often, Lord, as we come to hear the preaching of your word, as we hear song and we sing praises to your name for what you've done for us. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints that we can ever so sweetly testify to our precious Savior in the midst of our sufferings and sorrows and sadness, in the midst of being on the very brink of death. Our only hope is our Lord Jesus Christ. So make much of him to our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.